This is Eric Barker, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Berkus, best-selling author, speaker, and business school professor. And each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with outstanding thinkers and incredible doers. All of these interviews are designed to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date. Make sure you never miss an interview by joining our community. You can sign up at davidberkuscom slash podcast. Click on any of the episodes and there's signups right there or straight at davidberkus.com. You can also, if you're listening on your smartphone and you're in the United States, just text the word radio free to 33444. We'll send you some amazing resources that we can't really share in audio format on the podcast, including the Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. This is a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox. So again, to get all of that, just go to davidberkuscom slash podcast or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Now let's get started with this week's interview. So who are you and what do you do? Uh, I'm Eric Barker, and I, I have a blog, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, that uh, looks at academic research and talks to experts in their field so that we can figure out how to be awesome at life. And now I've written a book, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, which uh, looks at the science behind success. So if uh, longtime listeners of the show, well, just from the introduction, we'll listen to that and understand why uh, I was so excited to be able to have you on the show. So, But I have, I have a confession to make. So you know, on, on this show, we're focus on leadership, innovation, and strategy from an evidence-based perspective, informed by social science, uh, et cetera. And so I, as a result of that, have to follow, it's also the genre that I write in, but I have to follow like Science Daily and Mind and Brain, all, every like PR <laughs> outfit for every academic publication. I've got them in an RSS feed, in a, feed, <laughs> in a Feedly, because Google Reader died because so few people use it, but I still use it. And yet, often on your blog, I find studies I... Didn't I hadn't heard about yet? And then the the amazing thing is, and then I see that you've interviewed those people, etc. And you've been doing that for uh, I don't almost a decade now. Um, and I've learned a ton of um, awesome insights from studies that that again totally missed my uh, catch all system. That's clearly not catching all. So I'm grateful to the work that you do, and grateful that it's now in a in book form as well. Thanks so much, David. That means a lot. So the, the book really covers a variety of different stuff. And we use this term like success, but this is not, Eric is not Grant Cardone. He is not Tony Robbins. This is sort of like, I love the approach that you took. because like everybody's got a little bit different, different definition. So each, in each chapter, we're going to look at kind of a, a little bit different aspect of, of what leads to whatever that definition of success is. I'm, I'm probably putting words in your mouth as to why that was the strategy for how you structured it. But um, am I on target at least? Yeah, I mean, you know, for me, it was, you know, I've, I've done some, you know, some wandering in the career desert. And, you know, we, we hear these maxims when we're growing up about, you know, nice guys finish last. It's not what you know, it's who you know, uh, you know, winners never quit, quitters never win. And, you know, and that advice just always so pithy, but never served me well. And what I wanted to do with the book was actually look at those maxims and kind of give them the Mythbusters approach. And so each chapter was taking one of those maxims, one of those questions, and kind of going down the research rabbit hole and talking to experts and saying, does this really hold up? Is this just a, a pithy, cute thing to say? 
uh, or is it legit uh, or uh, is it is it legit here but not legit there and to kind of update it and you know figure out what the what the perhaps less pithy but more real answers to those questions are so all right so let's let's dive in on an example of this and it's probably not the most pithy um, saying but it's one that I'm sure uh, sort of we're all familiar with, which is that if you went to uh, an American high school, pretty much any high school, you undoubtedly had valedictorians and salutatorians. I had I had one valedictorian. My wife told me that she graduated from this this huge graduating class of like a thousand people, and so they gave like it was like the top one percent got valedictorian, et cetera, which just seems weird to me. But in any case, there's usually also like a yearbook where someone is voted the most likely to succeed, and I've always sort of jokingly noticed that those people don't usually become the sort of dent in the universe level success that we've noticed. So what's going on here with this system of like, these are the people that are supposed to be the best, the brightest, the smartest in school. And yet they often don't become the leaders in corporate life or nonprofit life or even government life moving forward. No, you're totally right. Uh, Karen Arnold did the research at Boston college and she, she, she tracked a bunch of uh, valedictorians and what they went on to do. And, and overall, you know, uh, they do well, they do very well. But the thing is that, you know, a lot of school is uh, complying with rules and, you know, and, and for, and if you're good at complying with rules, you do very well in school uh, because everything is very straightforward. Sadly, uh, life is not as straightforward. The rules aren't clear and they change without notice. So what you see with valedictorians is they do very well, but they don't end up shaking up the system. They don't end up leading the charge and changing the world. They usually slot in to positions uh, in the world that are already established. And if you look at other research, you see that the, the GPA, the average GPA of American millionaires is 2.9. Um, you know, and the quality that they're best known for is, is not conscientiousness or compliance. It's, it's grit, it's resilience. So, you know, being a valedictorian, those people are steady, consistent, reliable, but they're not usually the ones who, who dynamically change the system and, 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 you know, help reinvent the world as we know it. You know, as a, as a uh, B plus student, that actually makes me feel um, fantastic. No, it, it's weird. I'm probably the worst, as far as a business school professor, I give some of the worst, most sort of anti-business school advice often. Because the other <laughs> thing I noticed in this chapter is, in addition to sort of following the rules and being a good little automaton, right? This is not to get into like, um, you know, not to not to make references to being another brick in the wall, etc. Um, and go, and go, go back into some rock and roll greats. But I, you know, I'm one of the worst business school professors in terms of giving people advice because they'll ask me things like, oh, well, I did my undergrad degree and I focused in on marketing. Should I, should I do a concentration for an MBA in finance so I'm well-rounded? And I'm always like, no, well-rounded people never make history. You should double down on that if that's what you're passionate about. And we see that in school too, you know, until really until you get to probably the second half of an undergraduate college life school trains you to be well-rounded, which is kind of the exact opposite skill you need to make a dent in the universe. No, that's totally the case. I mean, you look at experts, you know, like, like Pete Drucker, who, you know, one of the you know, greatest management minds of the 20th century. And, you know, he just flat out says, you know, uh, double down on your strengths. You know, it's, it's, if, if you've, you know, if, if you're somebody who uh, has absolutely brilliant ideas but is disorganized, it's much easier for you to focus on those good ideas and get yourself an assistant 
to keep you uh, to keep your your act together and things organized, then you know it's going to be mu- you're going to get much better returns by doubling down on your strengths than by trying to bring up your weaknesses, things you're not naturally good at. And that's one of the the other problems is that you know the people who you know who do the best usually you know are are experts in their field. They're they're absolutely great at one thing. And I mean, a well-rounded skill set is valuable, but you know, when we're talking about things like 10,000 hours of deliberate practice and, and stuff like that, you know, it's, I mean, you look at top athletes, you know, they, they usually only do one sport, but yeah, school says, you know, even if you love history and you think you might want to go into, you know, history and you think it's just fantastic. Sorry, you got to stop that way. You can study geometry and then you got to, you know, and then you got to, you got to study for your other classes as well. And you're kind of forced now, granted, when you're young, it is good to try and sample a bunch of different things, but we're talking, you know, straight up through undergrad, people are spent, you know, just are forced to, uh, to distribute their time, their energy, their thought about among a bunch of different things. While it's very clear that in general, the, the world rewards, somebody who has really devoted the bulk of their time to one subject. And again, that, that doesn't speak well for, uh, for the, the, the school as a model of life success, because in the end, if you, you know, if you were to spend 90, 99% of your time, uh, on computer science, you know, and fail all your other classes, you would do horrible at school, but you would very likely get hired by Facebook or Google. Hmm. Well, and, and not to mention, you, it may also be that the the fact that you don't fit in, that you're a bit of a misfit, inspires you to start the next Facebook or Google. I mean, that's the that's the interesting thing is that when you uh, was it uh, Forbes uh, did there was an analysis of of the of the richest people on the Forbes list, and the funny thing was that the the subset that had dropped out of college or had not attended college at all their average net worth was nearly four times the uh the average of the uh of the the group as a whole. So I think I think the group as a whole, I think the average wealth was like one point six billion or something like that. If you just looked at the dropouts, their wealth was like I think like like four point something billion. You know, that those fifty eight who had dropped out did dramatically better. And in fact, if you looked at the dropouts uh, their net worth was far higher than the subset of those who had completed Ivy League degrees. Hmm. See, and that actually that that uh, it's funny that strikes me too. I remember there's a there's a, I think it's in Outliers where Gladwell, or maybe it's on the Revisionist History podcast where he talks about um, the the idea that uh, there's the Ivy League people who get in and they do fine, but then there's people who can get in and don't go. Uh, they go to a state school, et cetera, and they do just as well. And now it makes me wonder is like, uh, are what we're looking at are people who could have gotten in, right, but didn't even go to college, let alone to an Ivy League college, et cetera, or, or is there something else? And in, in kind of answering that, it takes my mind to there's a section on the book where you talk about, I, I, find, I found this fascinating, the uh, dandelions and orchids, the idea yes. that sort of like the line between who becomes a phenomenal success and who becomes crazy um, is, is often really that it's that environment. And are they kind of raised in that right environment to where even dropping out of school because of being raised in the right environment is not a negative. No, I mean, it's, it's so funny that, you know, this, this little metaphor that's used of, you know, of dandelions and orchids, I mean, you know, is, is actually a a discussion about cutting edge genetics where, you know, where some people 
uh, are dandelions, and dandelions are quite resilient. Nobody plants dandelions. They just pop up by the side of the road. Oh, believe and, you me, they're all over my yard. Yeah, there, there you go. And, and you know, they don't need to be cultivated. And, you know, and they're, and they're, pretty, they're pretty resilient. They're pretty straightforward. But then you have the, the metaphor of the orchid, which if it doesn't have the right temperature or the right food, the right amount of water, if it's not well taken care of, they die. But if properly cultivated, they become the most beautiful flowers. And it's so funny that, you know, that is actually, you know, quite a quite a good metaphor for what's being talked about in, in genetics. Because, you know, for the longest time, we, we see all these one-off little quick articles in the Internet talking about this gene or that gene. And it's, we, we oh, this is, this is the bad gene. If you have, if you have this gene, you're going to be, a, you're going to be an alcoholic or you're going to be violent, you know, and the truth is that that was referred to as the, the diathesis stress model, that some of these genes are just bad. And now what more and more geneticists are finding is what they call the differential susceptibility hypothesis, which is basically rather than some genes that are just bad. Uh, the same genes that cause problems um, when when kids are raised in stressful and difficult environments can actually confer benefits when those kids are raised in good environments. So these so it's not simply a sensitivity that makes you more likely to to end up in a bad situation. These people are more sensitive to everything. And when they're in a bad environment, they do end up alcoholics, violent, drug addicted. But when they're in good, envir good environments, these kids are more moral. They become more successful. So, I, and, you know, it's always trying to draw out that distinction. I do it a couple different ways in the chapter. That very often it's kind of a matter of figuring out, you know, who you are, you know, what type you are, and then making sure that you're in an environment, that your environment is aligned with the type you are. If you are the uh, compliant kid, then, hey, school and a, a very, uh, you know, regimented environment, you're going to do well. But if you are more of the orchid type, if you are more of somebody who's not as good with complying at rules and wants to vigorously pursue one passion, you might not do so well in school. But after school, if you pick the right pond and find, find an environment that's aligned with your natural skill set and desires, you can be fantastically successful. See, what I think is, is fascinating, this is twofold. I mean, one, there's the there's the idea, and I've never actually been a fan, even since my, my first book around creativity, on the nature versus nurture debate. I've never been a fan of nature winning. What I think is fascinating is that even nature now is showing that, well, like, actually, even what's coded in your DNA depends on the situation. So we get right back to this symbiotic relationship between two. The other is, you know, you, you read about studies like this, and you read about if you've, if you've heard the dandelion and the orchid analogy, et cetera, before, it carries with it this sort of, like, subtle implication that um, you're supposed to be an orchid or that, like, your kids are orchids. The truth is it's actually more about figuring out which one you are and then putting together a game plan. Yeah, because, you know, the, the world needs both. And, you know, we, we <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you things need to move steadily and consistently. You know, we we, we need we need engineers, uh, you know, who, who aren't going to give answers. Uh, if you're if you're doing aerospace design, you don't want the uh, the measurements to be kind of sort of, you know, in the ballpark. Uh, you know, that's that's not a good idea. And and on the flip side, it's like, yeah, we do need people who shake things up, do things differently, who are going to be in the arts, who are going to be the innovators of, you know, of tomorrow. And, you know, that kind of thing, as opposed to this kind of one size fits all attitude for success, uh, you know, that's what's really problematic as opposed to, you know, I talked to that about that in regards to leadership as well, you know, is that it's, it, it, everybody's not the same and figuring out kind of, you know, what your strengths are 
and then aligning them with your environment. The problem is when, when people, you know, don't, you know, know thyself, when people don't know who they are or when they pick an environment that's not suited to their skill set, yeah, then success can be incredibly difficult. Hmm. You know, the, the other thing that makes it kind of more difficult to, uh, success is more difficult to attain is that while we think, okay, you're supposed to be this instead of know thyself first, we also carry with it this assumption that whatever you do, you're supposed to sort of like never quit. And I know, I mean, your book talks of, of a ton of Angela Duckworth's research on grit, but I appreciate the sort of... Uh, nuance that it had to it because you know you earlier you even talked about sort of Malcolm Gladwell and the 10,000 hour rule and Kay Anders Erickson's research etc and and the while those things are important the truth is it also sort of takes some knowing when to quit in addition to having that grit and knowing when not to quit I mean if you never quit anything you know I I'd, I'd still be I'd still be playing t-ball and watching cartoons I mean you know it's like you you're not going to do the exact same things when you're a kid and and the more stuff you quit, the more time and energy you have to double down on the things that are important. Um, you know, one of the stories I tell in the book is um, uh, Spencer Glendon, who uh, is director of research for one of the largest uh, wealth management funds in Massachusetts. Incredibly successful guy, you know, PhD in economics from Harvard. He's he's helped uh, you know helped do charity work for uh, families in the South Side of Chicago. He's he's accomplished so incredibly much. Uh, and what a lot of people don't realize is that you know for for all the time when he was doing these things, Spencer was almost always um, very seriously ill. And uh, he suffered from uh, chronic ulcerative colitis. And one thing that became very clear to him uh, was that he only has so much time every day where he feels well and he has energy. And that he knew that was limited. And what that made him do was face head on very personally the issue of opportunity cost, where if I'm spending an hour here, I'm not spending it there. His time was very limited. He knew that. And so it, it gave him focus. And so he would have to say, I, I can't do these other four things today. I only have time to do this one thing. And that incredible level of focus, quitting a lot of stuff, became very powerful. Because when you know you have strict limitations, you, you have to focus on the things that are important. There's no, oh, I'll get it done tomorrow. So you know, quitting, strategic quitting, is actually the best friend you know, of grit, because the more, the more stuff you get rid of, the more time and energy you have to devote to that one thing that is so, so important that you want to stick with. Well, and to some extent, this goes back to that uh, myth of being well-rounded, right? That if you, if you're going to keep up being well-rounded, then that's going to suck up a lot of your time. But if you figure out what that one thing is, or the one or two things is, uh, and then you make the, the hard choices of saying no to sort of everything else, then you end up with that time. I mean, one of the one of the things I say in the book is that there's no such thing as a pretty good alligator wrestler, and you know it's it, it's there's no room for that. No, nobody no nobody with a brain tumor wants to go to a pretty good neurosurgeon, and so you know you want somebody who is amazing, you know, at their job, who's great at what at what they do. And that only comes from, you know, a strong dedication. So, you know, we hear a lot about uh, grit. And, and of course we do because a lot of people, you know, struggle with, with grit. But we need to look at the, at the flip side and we need to say, you know, because one of the other elements of quitting, I, you know, I talk about is, uh, you know, Peter Sims' excellent book, Little Bets, where just taking 5 to 10% five to of your time and letting yourself be a flake, trying things, you know, basically looking at your time almost as a venture capital portfolio where you take five to 10 percent of your time 
and you try a bunch of different stuff and you realize much like a VC that seven of the things you, you're going to try 10 things, seven of the things are going to fail. Two of them might kind of work out and, and one of them's going to be going to be the, the, the next, you know, huge, uh, huge startup. And that's how you make sure that you are still kind of learning and growing because to, to devote so much of your time, you know, to, to be, to be gritty on that one thing is fantastic, uh, and should be the primary focus, but you need to take five to 10% of the time, make sure you're still learning, make sure you're still growing, you know, making, make sure that in the, in the process of, 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 of grit that you're not, you don't end up as a dinosaur, you know, you don't end up, you know, not, uh, taking chances, trying something new and, uh, and expanding, uh, what you're doing so that you keep up with this very fast changing world. So uh, let's let's talk about something you should never say no to, or at least I'm sort of of the opinion you should never say no to. Although I probably, if you're if I'm being honest, say no to it more often than I'm supposed to. Which is that often, you know, if we're if we're t- generally when we define success, we have a very work centric definition of it. And when we look at the lives of of uber successful people, the billionaires, the whatever, it seems like often that comes with shortchanging their home life. And you have this great chapter in there on, on work-life balance, if that's even a thing, or uh, if it's just work, work, work all the time. And you draw from some, from some really interesting case studies, including the, the uh, 11-year-old boy in me was grateful to see you draw lessons from the world of professional wrestling. But, but let's, <laughs> let's talk about this idea and how kind of important getting that right is as, as well and whether or not that's something you should quit to say yes to bigger things or keep intact. I mean, because it's, it's tricky, you know, because, uh, you know, with the whole kind of 10,000 hours perspective, uh, you know, you, uh, you, you see that, you know, spending more time does, does pay off, uh, and working more, you know, does pay off. And when you, when you look, uh, I believe it's called the, the, you know, the, the price theory where if you look at the, the group of people who are doing something, you know, so let's say a hundred and you take the square root of that. So that would be 10 people. Those 10 people will produce 50% of the notable achievements in, in that arena. And, you know, other research basically shows that, you know, quantity, when, when you're good at what you do, quantity has a, a, a pretty, a pretty reliable correlation with, with quality, where if you're pretty good at what you do, the more you produce, you know, hey, nine nine of those things might suck, but the tenth is going to be great. Well, if you're outproducing everybody else by a factor of ten, you're going to have ten awesome things. They're only going to have one. Uh, so, you know, so more does produce results. But the challenge, of course, that this creates is when do you stop? And so we have, you know, fantastic examples uh, that I talk about the book. It's like, of, you know, Albert Einstein, Ted Williams who devoted enormous amounts of their, their personal time uh, towards their work, accomplished amazing things, but it was a Faustian bargain of sorts where they, you know, they, they destroyed their, their relationships uh, and their personal lives, uh, you know, achieving success in career. And so the, the issue becomes, you know, how do, we, how do we ride that line so that we achieve as much success as possible while still, you know, living a happy life? And, you know, it, it, it can be a tricky thing, but what is interesting is there is some research where you look at, uh, you know, one of the mistakes a lot of people make is what's called a collapsing strategy where they have a single metric for success in, in, in life. So if you say, I just want to make as much money as possible, I don't care about happiness. I don't care about my relationships. I don't care about my health. Uh, just, just, I'm going to look at the, the money in my bank account and I want to make that number go up. Well, can't well, you buy all those? Uh, no, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> getting there, getting there. But no, I mean, and, and so what people do when they use that kind of collapsing strategy is, yes, you put all the hours in. Those people usually do very well at those things. But then they find themselves, uh, you know, uh, you know, divorced. Their kids don't know them. They're in terrible health and they're miserable. And then you find other people use another ineffective uh, system, which is the, the is they use a sequencing strategy where, well, first I'm going to work ten hard, I'm going to work hard for hard for ten years, and then I'm going to focus on my relationships, and then I'm going to give back, and that never works out as uh, you know very well either because they're miserable when they're working so hard, and then when they're done working hard, if they ever get there, they 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 don't know their kids, and you know you can't sequence. And what uh, uh, Stevenson and Nash at, at Harvard Business School realized was that the most successful people actually use uh, four metrics. They happiness, achievement, significance, and legacy. And, you know, what that what those simply mean is, you know, happiness is 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 are you enjoying yourself? Achievement is, yes, getting ahead uh, in your chosen field. Uh, significance is, is what you do, uh, meaning, you know, is it, is it valuable to the people around you who you love and who love you? And then finally, the issue of legacy is, is does this benefit the world? And it's a little tricky, certainly to balance four metrics. But if you're, if you, if you look at your calendar, if you look at where your hours are being spent and you're depositing a little bit in each four, each of those four on a regular basis, then you can feel like I'm moving forward on on all of the metrics that that matter, and I'm not using a collapsing strategy or a sequencing strategy. Uh, I am enjoying myself. I am getting ahead. I am doing good for my family and friends, and I am contributing to the world. Okay, so you haven't talked about professional wrestlers yet, though. No, well, that ties, in, that ties in with the issue of happiness, where you know, where I, I talk about Kazushi Sakuraba, who. Who um, who turned one the of world- the greatest submission fighters of all time? <laughs> just for the record, a- a- absolutely. <laughs> you know, and when and when the Gracies were so incredibly dominant, and nobody thought they could be beaten, you know, who turns out to be the the white knight of Japan is is this this crazy guy who who dyes his hair orange and does cartwheel cartwheels, and uh, you know, and and I don't think anybody has had more fun. Uh, in the fighting sports than Kazushi Sakuraba. And, you know, we, we need to have fun. You can't just focus, you know, on success. Sometimes great things come from trying things a little different and enjoying yourself. I think that's definitely tied to creativity. And, you know, it, and it just allows us to, to enjoy it. it, just reduces stress and, and produces great things. Broke Henzo Gracie's arm. <laughs> <That's> all, <laughs> no, all right. So, so, so if... Long, long-term long listeners, people who are hopefully first-time listeners have no idea what's going on, but I, you know, um, I've been involved in some capacity in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Judo, mixed martial arts for like 15-something years. So um, I was, it was one of those weird moments where I'm flipping through the book and I'm reading it and I see that and I'm like, oh, this is going to be good. Like any, <laughs> any, any book with life lessons that also mentions esoteric Japanese <laughs> submission fighters. I'm in. I'm totally in. So I'm I'm curious on this one though because we talked about a bunch of different things around um around around success around having that balance, having that happiness, etc. I'm curious about sort of what you learn and how you define success and kind of more importantly, you know, you're someone who's had a really interesting career if I may. You know, I've looked. I look forward to a lot of your pieces when they get published. Often, um, I've got you in my feedly too. Um, I, I still have an RSS reader. I'm one of like <laughs> the seven people that threw a fit when Google killed Google Reader, and um, 
but but in your own life, you know, you're not the most sort of like public person out there. You know, there. I think you actually do have a Facebook page, etc. But you're you know you're not running around filming Facebook live videos and doing all of these things. Uh, at least until now, I have no idea what your plans are now that this book is out. But yeah. you know, you're somebody who's steadily built this thing over the last eight years. I have to ask: Is that informed by a lot of what you found? Um, and in what contributed to this book, or is that sort of an accidental justification? Cause I see a lot of parallels. I wonder if they're intentional, uh, in terms of, in, in terms of my background or in terms or, of how you structure your work, how you structured your life, uh, what success means to you. Yeah. I mean, you know, for me, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I don't think I, there's no photo or bio or anything of me, uh, on the blog. I don't, I don't usually I mean, for me that I, you know, it's like, that's, that's perfectly fine, but it's, you know, but it's, I don't, it's not about me, you know, it's, it's about the the work and it's about, you know, uh, you know, just creating a useful resource for people. And, um, you know, and definitely, um, you know, this has, you know, I, I, I had a very unconventional uh, career. I, you know, I, my undergrad was in philosophy, uh, I was a screenwriter in Hollywood for 10 years. I wrote for Disney and Fox. And then I, I got a master's degree in entertainment from UCLA Film School. And then, then I went and got an MBA and worked in video game marketing. And, you know, and and then I started this blog and I'm writing a book. And so so for me, I I knew that my path had been very unconventional. And there there wasn't, you know, it, it, there wasn't a very straightforward, linear model, uh, you know, or a role model for me to follow. And so it was very difficult where, you know, other people might be able to say, oh, I, I want to, you know, I want to focus on business, I want to focus on engineering. And there's some very clear, you know, uh, very clear kind of benchmarks that you can, you can follow from very clear role models. So for me, you know, a lot of the success advice didn't seem to, to make sense, you know, especially like we're talking about with the valedictorian uh, study where, you know, oh, plan by the rules, eventually that, that, that didn't apply to me. So you know, for me, I, I, I felt like I needed to cobble, cobble things together and kind of find the answers. It's one of the things that led me to start the blog is, you know, I, I'm not the Zen master. I'm, I'm not the, uh, the, 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 you know, the guy I was trying to figure out these answers for myself. And I, you know, just thought, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to share them with other people because maybe they're, maybe they're struggling too. And, you know, I just kept looking like, what, what do we have in the research? What's been proven? Who can I talk to? And I've just sort of started to cobble these these things together because I was curious about them, you know. Um, you know, as I like to say, you you don't you don't build an Iron Man suit because you are invulnerable. You build one because you aren't. And you know, in that same way, it's like I, I was looking for answers for myself, and I found some amazing ones. So William Gibson has this great quote that I love, uh, where he said, uh, "The future is already here; it's just not evenly distributed." And a lot of the things we wonder about in regards to success and happiness, achievement in life, uh, there are answers to many of these questions. Uh, but you know, they're they're locked up in academic journals or or they're siloed in, in experts who have spent their life studying this. And it's it's not an issue of unsolvable problems. It's just an issue of distribution and access. And so, you know, I, I wanted these answers for myself and I wanted to share them with as many as people as possible. So definitely, uh, you know, what I've been reading on both the blog and the book has definitely affected my life. 
You're being humble. You, sir, are the Kazushi Sakuraba of success <laughs> research and literature. Um, so if you if you want to check out some of those insights, the book again, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, uh, the surprising science behind why everything you know about success is mostly wrong. I, I by, the, by the way, I appreciate the nuance on mostly wrong. You could have made the overt statement that it's all wrong, but it's mostly Wrong, but there's a couple things, you know, there's a couple aphorisms that we give that are actually true. Eric, uh, at this point in the show, we ask all of our, we, we switch from the book or the ideas to the to the thinker himself, and we ask all of our guests the same few questions. If you're ready, I want to hit you up with those. Uh, I, I, am, I am intimidated, but ready. Please go ahead. <laughs> so the first one, what's the best advice you've ever received? Um, the best advice I've ever received? Um. I would have to say that uh, one of the one of the, the one of the best advice uh, one of the best uh, pieces of advice I've received, uh, which which is actually in the book uh, because I think it's I think it's really important, uh, was uh, Bob Sutton at Stanford uh, uh, told me that he said whenever you start a job, he's like, and you go in and you interview, he's like, look around at all the people that work there. He said because you're going to become like them, they're not going to become like you. And if looking around and thinking about that makes you a little bit scared or concerned, then then don't take the job because you know when you when you look at you know so much of it, uh, so much of the the research. Uh, you know, I talked to Dan Ariely, and he just you know, said is like one of the biggest things we've learned from all the social science research is the importance of context. And we all like to think that we're independent thinkers and that we're unique little snowflakes, and that you know we make our own decisions. And the truth is that context affects us enormously. Uh, that you know, other people uh, have great influence on us, whether we realize it or not, and um, and I think that's something that a lot of us discount or totally disbelieve. So to think about your context, to think about the world around you, and most importantly, think about the people around you and how they're going to influence you, not only in levels of success but also in eth- issues of ethics. Uh, you know, who do you want to be? And if the people around you are not like that. Um, you, you could be walking into, uh, to some dangerous territory. Hmm. What's an ideal work day look like for you? Uh, uh, ideal work day look like for me. Um, I, I really, I really like when, when I, I, I wake up, I have a morning ritual and, you know, I'm very focused on getting my head in the right place and knowing what my priorities are for the day. And set, and most of all, setting that one thing where I'm like, if I get this done, I can feel good about myself. I will have achieved everything. And um, and then doing a few hours of what Cal Newport calls deep work. Uh, if I can get a good four or five hours of deep work in and not be distracted, um, you know, then I can truly relax at night. And, you know, that's that's what's critical for me is waking up, getting in the right frame of mind. You know, knowing what's important for that day, uh, you know, really four or five hours getting some solid work done, being able to write down in a sentence, here's what I achieved today and feel good about it. Um, if I can do that, man, you know, I, I, I feel great. The, the weight comes off my shoulders and, and I feel great. Now, I know that you're probably uh, writing and reading and doing a bunch of stuff to prep for, uh, for the book. But beyond that, what are you reading right now? Uh, right now, I am. Uh, I'm reading, and I'm reading. Usually, I'm usually in caught in a few books at the same time. 
Uh, right now I'm reading uh, uh, Bob Sutton's new book, uh, The Asshole Survival Guide, which is which is fantastic. Um, I just got Option B, uh, Sheryl Sandberg and Adam Grant's new book, uh, which I'm excited to really excited to check out. Uh, Tom Friedman's new book, uh, which just he has such a fantastic, smart and warm voice. Uh, I always I always learn something there. And there's a, another book on oh, I'm forgetting the, forgetting the title. But there's uh, another book on uh, on on Buddhism that was that written by it's written up to about it's about Buddhist meditation, but it was actually written by a neuroscientist. And it's it's uh, it's really sharp. So the book predominantly is, is a collection of things that, based on the research, you believe that a lot of people don't. But this is, we asked this question, so if we could distill it down to one answer. What do you believe that most people don't? I believe that, I believe that you know, success, uh, success comes from a personal definition that, you know, glomming on to society's uh, vision of success is, is dangerous, unhappy, and uh, in the in long term unfulfilling, and that it comes from, you know, knowing your strengths and finding the right environment and aligning them with the proper environment, and that I think I think what it comes down to in terms of what I believe that that others might not is that is that anyone can live a successful life that it's it's not something that is only reserved for X percentage of us, uh, but because it is tailored because it is custom. And I'm not just talking about moving the goalposts, but because it is tailored, because of his custom, anybody can live a successful life. This is not a zero sum game where some are going to win or some are going to lose. Um, if you tailor your vision of success and you know your strengths and align them with the right environment, then, you know, anyone can have a, a successful life. So the title of the show is Radio Free Leader. You looked at a lot of different successful people, a lot of stories in the book, Profile Leaders. In your view, what makes someone a leader? Uh, I go into that in 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 uh, pretty good detail in the first chapter, um, uh, because what was funny, it actually impacted me directly, was I was reading all the research. I'm going through all the all the research on leadership, and it was not consistent. It was like one of the few subjects that I looked at, and people disagreed strongly. There were some people who said, uh, you know. If you have a great team of A players, leaders don't matter. The team will self-organize and accomplish things. Uh, and then there was other research that said, you know, a great charismatic figure unites people and, you know, can help uh, people do fantastic things they couldn't do without them. And I, for the life of me, could not find a way to reconcile these two different viewpoints. And then I looked at the research of Gotham Makunda at Harvard Business School, and it, he showed that there are two types of leaders. There are vetted leaders who, when somebody becomes CEO of GE, they're so highly vetted, they have to move through all the ranks, and they're so scrutinized that if you pick the number one candidate for CEO of GE or the number two candidate, they would effectively be indistinguishable because they've both run the same gauntlet. They've both been vetted in the same ways. So in that sense highly vetted leaders don't have enormous differ, differential impact because they're so vetted, they're the same. And then you have the, the unfiltered leaders, the unvetted leaders. Those are the entrepreneurs. Those are the artists. Those are somebody who does something and there's no vetting process or less vetting process. Like when a, when a vice president ends up in the president, you know, in the seat of the president, 
uh, they weren't elected. They weren't chosen. So those people behave very differently and they can have enormous impact. Sometimes it's negative because they haven't been vetted. But other times, if you look at the presidency of Abraham Lincoln, you know, it was through a perfect storm of events that Lincoln became president. He had enormous, he, he changed things enormously. He changed a thing called slavery. So, you know, those people have enormous impact. So in terms of leadership, once again, you know, looking at are you a dandelion? Or are you an orchid? Are you a compliant valedictorian or a, a little wild? And also realizing, you know, are you more of an unfiltered or a filtered leader? These are all things that can help us figure out, you know, where we lie and where we'll best fit in and what will allow us to achieve success. I love it. And a great note to end on. If you're still trying to figure that out, great book for you to check out Barking Up the Wrong Tree by Eric Barker, the Kazushi Sakuraba of success literature. If you have no idea what that means, get on YouTube, but also get on Amazon <laughs> and get a copy of the book. Eric, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. This has been great. Thank you so much, David.